Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Hey, if you have a Bible, uh, please grab it. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount today, and I do, um, I guess I need to be a little uh, upfront in terms of what the topic is. We will be talking about sexuality, about lust about marriage, uh, about all those topics. And so if you, if you may feel that's, that's uh, something that uh, someone in the room may not need to hear, then uh, I'll give you that opportunity to, uh, to make that decision now. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up in verse, start in verse 27. Matthew chapter, 20, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. The word of the Lord. You heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But see, I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. So we have a light subject (laughs) today. Hey, let me pray for us before we jump in. Father, I thank you that you uh, have created us and we are good. Male and female, you have created us in the image of God to reflect who you are to the world. And Lord, that, that reflection, I thank you that it doesn't stop on the doors of our sexuality. The expression of human sexuality in the context of the covenant of marriage is a beautiful, powerful reflection, Father, of oneness and, Father, of your love for us. And so, Lord, as we engage in this conversation, as we walk down this territory, I know there are those, there's probably those in this room that have been hurt by divorce, those that carry shame due to sexual addictions or even what others have done to them. And so, Father, more than anything, we pray for healing. We pray for healing in these areas. We pray, Father, as a church, that we would have the confidence and yet the love to engage well on these issues, not to shame others, not to walk out simply into a culture that disagrees with us, casting the first stone, but instead, Father, walking in grace and truth as we first surrender to you, Lord, the goodness of our own sexuality and ask for redemption and healing so that we can go into the world and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Father, guide us in this time and heal us in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we jump into this, this week I was reading a number of articles and this this first article really stood out. It was by a former uh, Disney actress. She was a child actress. She's since grown up. And she was talking about how she had made $2 million in two weeks 
simply by posting some pretty suggestive, you may even say explicit photos of herself online. And in this article, she was commenting on why she did this and her thoughts concerning it. And this is what she said. If you think that pornography is uncomfortable, I'm sorry that you are uncomfortable. But don't make other people feel uncomfortable for being okay with it. Because at the end of the day, it is simply sex. It is something that the human body wants. And if you're scared of it, that's fine to each his own. But don't tear somebody else down because they're confident with their own sexuality. I share that because I think it captures the spirit of our culture and of our day when it comes to human sexuality, that it's simply a desire of the body. It's no different than eating. It's no different than drinking. It's just a desire. It's simply a desire that should be satisfied as, as easy as you eat or as you drink. You should satisfy the body's desire for sex. You know, the Bible has a much higher view of human sexuality, a higher value of the placement of human sexuality in the human body than our culture does. And so the Bible and Christianity stands at this place of honoring that which God has created. Now, in that same vein, here you have this expression of sexuality in our culture, which is simply a desire. I also came across this article, and here's the title. The title was Missing Children, Rescued in Georgia Trafficking Bust. Nearly 40 missing or endangered children have been rescued by federal and state agents during a law enforcement operation in Georgia, authorities say. 40 missing and endangered children taken out of a sex trafficking scam. Now, our culture wants to separate those two realities, the sexual abuses in our culture and the right to experience whatever we, we desire sexually should be removed from one another. But I'd suggest the comment that this actress makes in terms of what sexual desire is leads directly into the abuses that we see in our world. And hear me, not just in our world, but also within the church. The church does not have a very good foundation when it comes to talking about issues like this. Whether it's within the Catholic church or in the evangelical church or the Protestant church, there is not a segment of the church that has not been scarred and lacks character in how they've engaged in the world. I mean, how many pastors have we seen? And these are not just pastors like me with no name out in a community. These are pastors with names and with large ministries every single year, this issue comes up. And it's not just pornography, it's adultery. As a church, we need to first examine ourselves before we examine the world. We've got to carry a standard that is higher and greater and, and reflects the God that we worship before we just move out into the world with truth, we've got to start addressing the issues within the church. Because when you look at the statistics, they're not good. The use of pornography outside the church, just look it up, it's, it, the numbers are not that different within the church. And within a room like this, there are at least 40 to 50% of people who on some time are struggling with pornography, whether that is an addiction or an occasional glance, this is a commonplace theme within our culture. And as the church, we have to engage 
we've got to talk about it. We've got to be okay having those conversations because, see, if we don't, then we're simply saying, world, disciple us. Disciple our children. Disciple us. And if we're not honest about what's going on, then we can't, as a community, bring about the healing that God desires. So as we walk into this, we need to see that the church itself needs to have a higher standard in terms of our own relationships with each other and how we carry out that vision for sexuality into the world. Because the reality is, I think we know, we live in a pretty hyper-sexualized culture. Now understand, in the New Testament, it was very similar. The Greeks, the Romans, we, we haven't gotten there yet, guys. Listen, they were at a higher level of sexual expression. So understand, the gospel came out of a very sexually explicit culture. It speaks well to that culture, and it does well within that culture. But we have to walk, first of all, in that, in that culture with a heart that loves God, with all our heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, and a heart that loves our neighbors, ourselves. That as we talk about this issue of human sexuality, it all comes under the banner of loving God with our whole heart and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So as we jump in, let's discover what Jesus is saying about human sexuality, and then at the end of this, we'll look just for a moment at what he says about divorce. And these are some pretty strong words. So verse 27, he's using this rabbinical saying, which is, you have heard it said. This is how the rabbis spoke, and then they would quote from the Old Testament. That's what he does. You've heard it said. And he quotes from number seven of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. So that's Exodus 20, 15. And then he goes on to say, well, this is God's command. And then what he says, but, you, but here's what I tell you, meaning this was God's intention from the beginning in verse 28. But I say to you, here's what this command means. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That when God in the Old Testament said, don't commit adultery, he didn't simply say, don't find yourself in the wrong bed. Rather, honor the human body. Do not objectify women, but rather recognize that God has created sexuality for a good purpose and honor God with, with your body. I think it's helpful in the ESV how it's translated in verse 28. It says to look upon a woman with lustful intent. That God is not saying that our desires are bad and the flash of sexual desire is not an evil thing within the body. No, God has created it good. But there is a temptation that comes upon us when we take those desires and instead of a glance, we go to a look, we go to a gaze, we go to imagination, we go to fantasizing. In his book, The Good and Beautiful Life, James Bryan Smith, he writes this. He says, the two greatest false narratives when it comes to Jesus teachings are to conclude that all sexual feelings are bad and should be stuffed away, or to conclude from our culture that all sexual feelings are good and simply should be satisfied. So what does lustful intent mean? Now, first of all, Jesus is not addressing the appreciation of beauty. In Genesis 1, 30, I think 31, it, uh, God said that he looked at everything that he had made and he said it was good. And in the Hebrew, the word good is the word tov, and it means aesthetically pleasing. It's not just good as in bad and good. It's something that is beautiful, that when God looked at creation, he says, it's beautiful. It's as he designed it to be. And hear me, that includes the human body. It is a good thing that God creates beauty in creation. And, and over generations, 
what, what is beautiful to one generation is beautiful to a different generation. That has shifted. But it is a good thing that God has created the human body to be beautiful. And parents, we should value that. As we value creation and we protect creation, we should value our bodies and we should teach our kids. The human body is a beautiful and a good thing. And the expression of the human body as God designed it is beautiful and right in its place. And we need to hold up that view of creation that says God has created all things good. Jesus is not saying appreciating the human body is wrong. Now, how we do that, you know, whether that's in art or in movies and that kind of stuff, that, that's where it, it starts to shift. But we should appreciate the value of the human body. Now, second, it also doesn't refer to, when he's talking about a lustful look, a lustful intent, he's not talking about, as we know now, this neurobiological momentary flash of sexual desire that comes over the body when you look upon somebody that you find physically attractive. Now, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, okay? I don't want to be the only one up here who has experienced this. But I have been innocently shopping for my Charmin at Walmart, and somebody has walked by. And maybe they should have been wearing more, or, or maybe they were a definition of beauty that was attractive to me. And upon seeing that individual, there is a reaction in the body. It is desire. It is sexual passion. And that is a normal reaction when you look upon someone who is attractive the body does respond. That's not what Jesus is referring to. That is also a part of the human design. Now, I would say that's a temptation, but it's not sinful. It is not sinful simply to have a reaction to someone else. Now, listen, you can influence the depths of those reactions. Trust me, I know. What you watch, what you think about... What you desire will have an influence when you see somebody you find attraction, attractive that does have an influence on our body, but he's not talking about the momentary neurological, biological reaction of the body. And the younger you are, the higher those biological reactions tend to fire in the body. And so if they're young people, understand that is good and that is right and that is normal. It is a temptation, and we can influence our temptations but it's not a sin. So Jesus is not saying sexuality is bad. I think the church at times has said that. He's not saying that flash of desire is, is a bad thing. Rather, when he's describing the brokenness of sexuality in our culture, he's describing the objectification of another human being simply for selfish or personal gratification. You know, Martin Luther, the reformer, this is the 1500s, so sexual temptation's been around for a while. He described this involuntary reaction this way. And he said, and this is in his commentary on the book of Matthew. He says, it's impossible to keep the devil from shooting evil thoughts and lust into your heart. But see to it that you do not let such arrows stick there and take root. But rather, we should tear them out. We should address them and throw them away. Do what one of the ancient fathers counseled long ago. I cannot, he said, keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from nesting in my hair or biting off my nose. That temptation is sometimes something we can't control, but we can respond to it in a way that reflects 
God's desires. One of my favorite authors, Sky Jatani, describes sexual desires this way. He said, one of the most dangerous cultural narratives is that desires cannot be controlled, that we are just rudderless ships being carried along by sexual currents far beyond our power to resist. We can control the desires of the body. There are greater authorities that can come into our life and God's authority and power. So what is he talking about when he's, he's describing a lustful look? Again, Jesus is addressing gazing upon a woman in order to experience sexual gratification. Now, if you'll notice, Jesus is not addressing women. He's calling out men. Now, why? Because he both in divorce and when it came to lust, it was the abuse of men in the first century of objectifying and, and treating women as objects that Jesus was addressing. Women were not were not treated well within first century culture. And so Jesus calls out the men to take responsibility for the way that they are treating women. Not to suggest that women don't struggle with sexual desire or or even pornography, but Jesus is specifically calling out the men for their oppression of women in its day and also when it comes to divorce. And so let's go back to verse 28. And he says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Notice he's saying this is about the heart. Just as with all the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, I want a purity of heart. I don't want you just to be good boys and girls that are avoiding certain beds. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And I want this good desire to be under God's power and control. And so lustful intent means to gaze upon someone for the purpose of sexual gratification. Now the message paraphrases it this way. But don't think you're preserved, you've preserved your virtue by simply staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices also corrupt. Author uh, Dallas Willard defined lustful intent this way. He says it means to look upon a woman for the purpose of lusting for her using her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. You have thereby committed adultery with her in your heart. Sexual desire is a gift God has given to be cared for, not just a momentary desire to be satisfied. Sexual desire is a gift of God to be cared for, not just a momentary desire. And in many ways, what Jesus teaches about sex and sexuality is very similar to what he teaches about anger. If you look at the previous context, as Jesus talks about anger, he says in verse 22, but I say to you, anyone who looks, who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, what do I mean? Well, the word anger that he used there is not a flash of anger. It's not what happens when you're driving. Now, you can try to influence that. But that's a flash. It's not, hap- it's not what happens when your kids are yelling at each other and that just kind of comes out. That's a different word in the Greek for anger. The word for anger that he uses is this word orge. And it's to stew in anger. It's to sit in anger. It's to allow anger to have authority over your mind, your will, your actions, your emotions, so that you move out into the world as angry. That's the same concept he has with lust. 
It's not a momentary desire. It's not fleeting attraction. It's sitting in it. It's stewing in it. It's allowing it to mature. It's watching it. It's looking for it. And you know what I mean when I say looking for it. We hunt it down, and it produces in us and in our hearts a heart that does not love God but loves self more than it loves God. The same concept is at work. Lustful intent happens when a momentary glance turns into a fixation, when attraction finds its way to fantasy, when a neuro, neurobiological response becomes a sudden flood of desire that we, we cultivate. So how should we respond? He doesn't just leave us hanging. Rather, Jesus provides a way out. And he says in verses 29 and, and 30, here's, here's how we should respond. And it is quite shocking. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, here's the solution. Well, just tear it out and throw it away. For it is better if you lose one of the members of your body for than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And hell here is this word Gehenna, which was a physical place in Jerusalem. It was a, a trash heap. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose the members of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, as far as we know, I've read church history, and there were not Christians walking around with one hand, and there were not Christians in the early church walking around with one eye. Jesus is not encouraging self-mutilation. He's saying you need to respond quickly. Now, in our culture, we love to linger. We love to gaze. Hey, I'm, I'm not buying. I'm just, I'm just browsing. I'm just looking. Jesus would have an issue with that. You see, the standard he's raising is not just a standard of behavior. It's a standard of what we worship, a standard of what we love, a standard of what leads to human flourishing. And he's raising that standard and saying, when you have allowed your heart to worship upon the human body, to be saturated in it, you're bringing hell into your life. See, sexual desire, sexual temptation that gets a hold of you will change the way you see God. There is nothing, sexuality is powerful. Would we not agree with that? I think it's pretty powerful. And if you have something that powerful in your life and it takes hold of you, it will cause you in a sense to change the way that you see God, to change what you think God will say is right or what is wrong. And see, it's not us that must look at God through the lens of sexuality and tell him who he is. No, he's created us. God looks at us through the lens of creation, of love, and he tells us what this is designed for. And, and again, the language that Jesus used, it's the same that he's using for anger. Because pre, in the previous section, when Jesus talked about anger, and you find yourself in the temple in Jerusalem, and there you're offering your, your gift at the the altar, you're about to make this sacrifice, which means you just traveled, you're a pilgrim, you probably don't live in Jerusalem, you traveled 70, 80 miles, and now you're there, you're going you're gonna to sacrifice this animal, and then you remember that your brother has something against you, what does he tell you to do? Get out of there, leave, go address it before you make the sacrifice. The same thing is true when it comes to sexual desire. When it comes upon us, we've got to bring God into it. The foolishness of the Christian church is sin management. I just need to manage this. Now, when I was a young man, here's one of the strategies somebody gave me, and I tried this. I tried to see if it worked, and he told me to take a rubber band, and I put it around my wrist. You know where I'm going with this? And every time that desire came, you know, you'd pull it, you'd let it go. And then when the desire came again, what you, what you do the next time is you got to go further, right? You gotta, 
That's called sin management. It may change the what you're doing with the body. It's not changing what you love and what you value. Jesus is addressing the heart. And he's saying when those desires come, acknowledge it. Don't simply repress it. Acknowledge it and invite God into that moment. We, should, we would recognize we should invite God into our anger, right? When we're yelling, we're, hey, God, would you help me here? Well, the same thing is true with our sexuality. God's not ashamed. He created it. The most holy moment is when a wife, a husband and a wife come together in marriage. That's holiness. That's goodness. That's righteousness. God has created that. And therefore, God should also be a part of our temptations, That when we fall into temptation, instead of just simply running to behavior management, we should run to worship. You struggle with pornography, turn on worship music. It's very, very difficult to have worship music and pornography at the same time. You have to invite, and I'm I'm being serious because people struggle. We have to invite God into it. To simply think we can control it on our own without community, without God's presence, it doesn't work. The desires are too great. We have to invite God into that place and not simply shrug it off and say, listen, boys will be boys. Because, see, again, Jesus is calling out to the church, his children, to have a higher standard. And, listen, I'm guilty of saying that. But we have to have a higher standard when it comes to how we engage in our day. Because the truth is, no one wakes up in the morning and finds themselves in somebody else's bed in the afternoon. It's not an accident. Adultery doesn't just happen. It's cultivated. And it's cultivated when we don't set our heart fully on God and surrender these desires to him. And, and hear me on this. Within the church, it's okay to struggle. Now, it's not okay to perpetuate sin. But what I'm saying, it's okay to have conversations. It's okay to struggle. Jesus wasn't surprised by same-sex attraction. It's not, it's not as if it was like, wow, I didn't realize that existed. Christians have struggled with sexual desire in all different ways, and in ways we couldn't even imagine if you understand Roman and Greek culture, which was a mess sexually. And yet the purity of Jesus' message transformed the culture because they saw something beautiful in it. Church, we have an opportunity. This is an opportunity. Now, the challenge, I think, in our culture today is we have mistaken, certainly our culture's trying to communicate, that love and lust are the same thing. When you watch a movie and someone says, hey, I love you, I think really what you're going to find within a few minutes of that movie is I lust you. I want to be with you. I want to be together with you. As long as this desire continues to thrive, I'll be with you. But once the desire is gone, the love is gone. And as you know, in 1 Corinthians 13, as we understand what love is, it starts with this phrase, love is patient. Now, I hate patience, certainly when it comes to desire. Even when it comes to food and drink, I can't control myself. So let alone the desires of the body that are passionate and real. And and yet he says it's, it's, it's patient. Why is it patient? Because he loves, seeks the best. Love is till death to us part, but let's think about lust. Is lust patient? <laughs> hey, I'm just going to wait. No, love, lust is irritated when it has to wait. It demands, it wants. Love is patient, lust pursues. Love is faithful. Love sticks whether it gets what it wants or not. 
Love seeks the best interest of the others. What did Jesus do when he came? He, he sought our best interest. He put the interest of others ahead of our own. That's true with our sexuality too. All scripture applies. And just because we have a desire we need to express, he says, you know, life is found by dying to self. Now that's hard. Listen, in the area of sexuality, and certainly it's, it's hard, but there is something beautiful about surrendering that to God and allowing him to use it and being honest with him in it. Love is faithful. Lust is faithful as long as it's satisfied, as long as it gets what it wants. Love, self-sacrifice. Lust, selfish. I want what I want, and I will go from relationship to relationship from moment to moment to get what I need. God is calling us to not simply fall into love, but to will to love. That love is not just an emotion that comes over us and we fall into a pit. Love is a choice. And are we willing to love God with our sexuality? Are you willing to love God with the desires he's given you to surrender them to him? And his authority is great enough. His authority and power, if we surrender in community with one another, he cultivates a desire that reflects who he is. Are we willing to surrender to him? So let me ask, Jesus says, you know, you need to cut something out. Church, what do you need to cut out? Because if he was talking about body parts, there is a much more strategic part to cut off than the hand and the eye. He's not talking about self-mutilation. He is saying you need to be wise. Some of you may need a flip phone. Can I get an amen for a flip phone? That doesn't have graphics. If you struggle, listen, cut it off. You know, I can be honest, as a young man, I struggled with pornography for many years. And there was a time where I could not get on any device without my wife putting in the password. That will keep you from looking at pornography when you give your wife the honor and respect to say, no, you need to have control. Are you willing to love God to that depth? Because the reality is people are struggling. The statistics in the church are not different than the statistics in the world. That means in this room, 40 to 50% of the people who are here today are struggling in some aspect of sexuality. We need to talk about that. We need to be okay with having those conversations and loving each other enough, because here's the reality. When I watch a violent movie, I don't want to kill someone. <laughs> when, I, when I listen to language, and I know it's not good for my soul, and when I listen to foul language, I, I know that's not good for my soul, but I, I don't want to speak that way to others. But when I watch something, whether it's Game of Thrones, what's, what's your passion, Outlanders, all those stuff. When I see that, I can't walk away without being affected. And maybe that's my immaturity, and you guys are much more mature. But as the church, what we set our heart on and our eyes on, it starts to disciple us. And we've got to have higher standards to recognize it's influencing the way we love God and the way we love others. We need a higher standard. Because the reality, when Jesus talks about divorce, those two are connected. And so quickly, if we could just kind of jump into, and I hate to, to do this fast, but I think we need to jump into verse 31. Jesus goes on to say, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, let me explain what he's referring to. 
See, in Jesus' day, there was easy divorce culture. The abuse of men with women and objectifying them also resulted in a divorce culture that was easy for men, but women had no opportunity, no ability to defend themselves. And when he says, give her a certificate of divorce, he's referring to a obscure, very obscure passage in Deuteronomy 24, in which God instructed through Moses this case law. This isn't law so much as it is a case law, meaning if this happens and this happens and this happens, here's what you should do. And so Jesus is referencing this case law in Deuteronomy 24, and let me read it for you. And here's what it says, and it's, it's obscure, but it's in, it's in the Bible. When a man takes a wife and he marries her, then he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found, and here's the key word, some indecency in her. In the Hebrew, it's this word, evat devar. And the question became in Jesus' day, what is indecency? Moses didn't define it. The rabbis often said it was adultery. That was the common thought in Moses' day. So if he finds some indecency in her, here's what he can do. He can write a certificate of divorce, put it in her hand, and he can send her out the house. He departs, she departs out of the house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, so again, this is hypothetical, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of the house, and if the latter man dies, who took her of his, as his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. Now, why is it saying that? Because, see, that was the practice of the day. If you divorced your wife, you didn't give her a certificate of divorce, you could just take her back. Women were being abused in Moses' day and in Jesus' day. And see, what happened was there was this rock star rabbi. And we don't think of rabbis as rock stars, but his name was Hillel. And he said in Deuteronomy 24, when it said indecency in your wife, here's what it means. It means, men, whatever you want it to mean. She's looking a little heavy, indecency. She's not as attractive as you once found her, indecency. Meals aren't as good as they used to be, indecency. In Jewish culture in Jesus' day, a man could basically cast his wife out for any reason. Jesus is saying no. Realize in Deuteronomy 24, it was protecting women to give them a certificate of divorce. It seems strange to us, but see, women did not have power in that culture. And if she did not have a certificate of divorce, she would be homeless. She could not find a job. She could not find a way of life. And so to give her a certificate of divorce allowed her to be remarried. When Jesus is addressing divorce, he's talking about the oppression of women more than he's giving you the reasons why you can get out of this thing. See, as modern Americans, we tend to say, well, what, what's the clause? God has no clause in marriage. Marriages do break up. There are times where divorce because of the hardness of heart, because of the sin that is in a relationship, because of abuse, is a necessary out. But God's heart in marriage is always reconciliation. Jesus isn't saying, well, hey, if somebody commits adultery, that's it, right? No healing, no forgiveness, no. Because see, at the heart of the gospel is reconciliation. You know, the most beautiful example of that often that I've met is a husband or a wife that's forgiven their spouse for infidelity. And not just forgiven, set different standards, and there is now a deeper and a richer relationship because reconciliation has happened. That sends a gospel message 
into the world, even through the brokenness of adultery and sin, it says it can be reconciled. God doesn't want us simply to have ways out. He wants us to honor one another. And realize the God that we worship is the one who loved us while we were adulterers. I don't know if you realize the language of the Old Testament often caused Israel the, and excuse me, the whore, the harlot. Because see, our heart runs after foreign gods. And see, when Jesus gave himself to us, he didn't just give, us, give himself to us on a contractual basis. You know, as long as we obey, he's going to love us. And as long as he loves us, we obey. No, no, no. He gave himself entirely to us. He died. For what purpose? To reconcile us to the Father. That is the love that we have within God and within us, and it should start to permeate our marriages. That this is not a contract. This is not if I get this, she gives me this, and if she gives this, I get this. There is something that happens when the love of God takes over and a husband begins to serve his wife or a wife begins to serve her husband with God-centered, self-sacrificial love. You want to see change? It does happen. Now, does every marriage result in change like that? No. We still live in a broken world, and we should not shame those that have gone through divorce. I can promise you, as a 14-year-old girl, a 15-year-old boy, they didn't hope for divorce at 35. Just as we do not shame those who are angry, we don't shame those that are lusting, we do not shame those that have gone through divorce. We seek to be a community of healing, because here's the reality, within the church, those people have the opportunity to speak into the world. And not only with sexuality, but with marriage, with divorce, we have to reflect a redemptive view of God into the world, a God who is willing to put our needs above his own. And so let me say, I know there are those that are struggling. And as a church, we want to be a place where we can talk about that openly. I've already confessed to you as a young man, I struggled with pornography for many years into my marriage, even going to counseling. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, my wife would have had reasons to divorce me. But it was God's grace. It's God's grace through her, God's grace through her love, her patience, her self-sacrifice. There is nothing more powerful to bring about change. And if you're struggling in that area, there are resources. Now, you may need to cut something off. You may need to get serious about it but God can change and turn much faster than we have invested into sin, investing into grace and to God, heals and redeems. And we need to be a community that's open to that conversation, church. Because there are people struggling with sexual desires that seem very strange to us. But if they're gonna come in the church, if they're gonna hear the gospel, we have to be willing to have those conversations. And it may not be you that has them. But we have to engage in ways that allows redemption to happen. We have to speak truth and grace. And so if you're struggling in that area, the best thing to do is just to confess, to be open, to be honest. Now, not in this room and at this moment, but with somebody you trust. There are resources online. There are resources for phones and computers. There's resources in community. You can reach out to us. There are online opportunities to connect with others that struggle we need to be serious about our own love for God, not just our management of sin, so that as the church, we can reflect a sexuality that is on earth as it is in heaven. And that is a powerful testimony to a world that is broken in sexual sin. We need to be the light.
And so let's start not so much with what's wrong out there, but guys, what's wrong in here? And are we willing to allow God to address it? Let me pray for us. Father, as we prayed last week, would you search us and know our hearts? Lord, we have, I know in this room and, and just within the church, so many of us have gone through experiences that have warped our minds, that it's impacted our emotions. And so this topic is incredibly painful for some. Divorce is painful. And yet you are the God that heals, the God that redeems, the God that restores. You ask us to pray daily, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, meaning you know the brokenness that's in us. But sometimes, Father, we're afraid to acknowledge it to you. And so I pray for courage within this community, within just Bergen Park Church as we start as a community of faith, saying, Father, we wanna serve you with our whole heart in submission to you, would we be honest about what's going on, certainly in the dark? And Lord, would you allow us to be that kind of redemptive community that leads to healing, that leads to hope, that leads to transformation, that allows people to struggle towards Christ. And Father, in the end, allows the gospel to be the center that shines out all the brighter because we have seen redemption and we have seen reconciliation. Father, guide us into this difficult area. But Lord, heal us and lead the way. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name.